Some of us who've been around a while know that hymn from many, many years past with an earlier tune. And I love that earlier tune, but I got to tell you, when we sing to that tune, the words seem to jump off the page into my heart so much more effectively. I'm not sure why, but uh, I'm very thankful that there are those who have undertaken to take great old hymns and put them in the musical language that is more familiar. Uh, Because music is a language, and it has uh, has, uh, uh, relevance in various ages and periods. And uh, sometimes those newer tunes cause those old truths to come to us with new freshness, and I'm very thankful for that. But thank you guys who served us this morning. Please turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 1. One of the most amazing stories in the Gospels, and there are many, many, many stories in the Gospels that are amazing, but one that I particularly love is uh, in Luke chapter 24. It's the morning after Jesus has risen from the dead, and there are these two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. One is named Cleopas. We don't know the other's name. And they're speaking with one another about the trouble uh, and the, the sorrow their hearts feel because their Savior, Jesus, has died, and all their hopes were in Him. And now it seems like it's all come crashing down. Uh, and the Lord appears to them and just walks up and starts talking to them and asking them questions. And the, the Scriptures tell us that their eyes were shielded so they didn't know that it was Jesus. And, and He asks them, What's, what, what are you talking about? And they tell Him that, uh, that Jesus has been crucified and that now uh, two women have, or some of the women have gone to the tomb and they didn't find his body but an angel appeared and told them that he is not there, he's risen and they don't know what to make of all of it and uh, Jesus' response really is a fitting introduction to the book of Hebrews let me read to you what our Lord says and this, is, this is a wonderful introduction to Hebrews if you think about it He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what Hebrews is about largely. But that's what the whole Old Testament is about. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It promises that God will send his Messiah, his son, the Lord Jesus. And our text this morning draws heavenly from Old, heavily, excuse me, heavenly, uh, from Old Testament prophecies. And some, it's very likely, if, if we could uh, go back and hear that, that message, as it were, that, that explanation Jesus gave that was never recorded. I once preached on that passage, and I called it the greatest sermon never recorded. Uh, But it's very possible he used some of these very texts that the author of Hebrews gives to us this morning. But he tells us in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, why is he beginning this discussion establishing Jesus' superiority to angels? What's the deal with angels? If we step back, we talked about this last week, that, that Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were experiencing persecution. Uh, later we see they've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, so they had not experienced martyrdom yet, but they were experiencing persecution. And the temptation was there to go back, to 
return, to turn back from this journey they have begun with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point of of Hebrews is to say, don't go back, press forward. Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. And he starts by saying Jesus is better than angels. And I said last week, I don't believe the Jews actually worshipped angels. They were fiercely monotheistic. But the reality is... Uh, there was a great interest among some Jews, a fascination among some first century Jews with angels. They were messengers from God to men. And at times they were even viewed as mediators between God and men, not only bringing God's message to us, but taking our message back to the Lord. And so there was some preoccupation on the, the parts of some Jewish uh, Jews uh, with angels. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul warns about the error of worshiping angels. And I don't think that was uh, an error uh, based in Judaism necessarily, but it was certainly something that Paul felt the need to warn the Colossian believers about. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to establish we don't want to go there because Jesus is superior to the angels. He's going to talk about all the other things he's superior to as well as we go forward, but this is a starting place. Now, last week, we looked at seven glorious statements about who Jesus is, what he's done. It was through Christ that he was, or or rather, excuse me, Jesus was appointed by the Father as the heir of all things, and it was through Jesus that the entire world was created, and that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And these statements aren't simply that Jesus reflects God's glory. He is, uh, he expresses, he reveals God's glory because he is God. God created the world through the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus created and he upholds the universe, we read in verse 3, by the word of his power. We read that he made purification for sins, which speaks of his priestly ministry as he gave his life on the cross to die for us. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, speaking of his exaltation after the resurrection and what we call his, his ascension and his exaltation as he is enthroned in heaven. And so the conclusion to those seven glorious statements in verse 4 is that he has become much more superior or as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so now we come to verses 5 through 14. The writer continues to press this case as he draws a contrast between Jesus and the angels. This is who Jesus is, and he's superior to the angels. And let me show you, even from the Old Testament scriptures, how that is true. These Old Testament prophecies given hundreds of years before Jesus ever came that tell us of Christ. Again, Hebrews reminds us that the entire Old Testament really does point us to Jesus, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan through his Messiah. So my title this morning is The Supremacy of Our Savior. And again, the particular focus is that Jesus is superior to the angels. I have five points. Good Calvinistic uh, uh, sermon there. No, seriously, though, five points. Jesus is superior, first of all, because of his unique sonship with the Father. Secondly, Jesus is superior because he is worshipped by angels. He is thirdly superior because of his eternal reign as God. Fourthly, Jesus is superior because he is the eternal creator. And then finally, Jesus is superior because he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. So let's look first of all. Jesus is superior because of his unique sonship with the Father. Verse 5 asks the question, 
For which of the angels, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, this quotation is taken from Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2 and verse 7. You remember Psalm 2 begins with why the heathen or why the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah. And God says, I've set my king on his holy hill. But he declares, let all the angels, or excuse me, he says, you're my son today. I have begotten you. I'll be to you a father. You to me, to me as a son. Now, we need to ask the question because we're not used to the word begotten very much. We don't, we don't use that word much. But what does it mean to be begotten? What does it mean that Jesus is begotten of the Father. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, uh, we read that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and so forth. But if you read it in the King James language, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat, you know, and so forth. And sometimes we affectionately refer to Matthew 1 as the begats, uh, meaning he was the father of. And it takes us to the genealogy of, of the Lord Jesus through the line of David, just like was prophesied in the Old Testament. Well, this speaks of Jesus' birth uh, uh, through, his, uh, through the line of his Old Testament ancestors. Now, but what does it mean to say Jesus was begotten of the Father? And especially today, I have begotten you. Does that mean there was ever a time that Jesus was not, uh, a time before Jesus was begotten, a time where Jesus came into existence, as it were? Now, we've already seen from Hebrews 1, Jesus is eternal. He created the world. It was through Jesus that God, God the Son, created the world and everything in it. In John 1, 1, we, we saw that John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't say, in the beginning, the Word came into existence. In the beginning, he was already there. He already was with God. He already was God. And he is the one who brought all things into existence. So, Jesus is eternal. <clears throat> so, the word begotten doesn't necessarily have to mean birth the way you and I as humans, experience birth. I was begotten by my father. At a particular date and time, I was conceived in the, in, in, in the body of my mother. You might say, uh, Jim Howell begat Jamie Howell. But there was a time before that I didn't exist. There aren't these little disembodied spirits in heaven waiting to get bodies and be born. Only the Lord Jesus existed before he was given a body. We call it his incarnation. But there was a time <clears throat> when I didn't exist. But there was also a time that I became a living human being and uh, I was born. So John 3.16, though, uses that term. God, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that word doesn't have to mean, speak of uh, the kind of birth we're talking about. Only begotten simply means a relationship with the Father, or begotten speaks of a relationship with the Father. And that word only begotten, it speaks of a unique relationship with the Father. And so, uh, there were five of us begotten by my dad. But Jesus was uniquely begotten by his Father. He has a unique relationship as God the Son. Now, in a particular date uh, in time, he uh, entered into human flesh. He was conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and she gave birth nine months later. 
And that happened at a particular time and place. But our, our catechism, the Baptist catechism says this, the only, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, the, our, our Baptist confession says that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And so the word, the way begotten is used, is used two different ways in the Bible. One speaks to that eternal relationship that Jesus has always had with the Father. He's always the Father. Jesus has always been the Son. But it also speaks to the human relationship. That particular time where he entered human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary, but still begotten of God. Conceived in Mary and born as a baby. the, The Baptist Catechism says the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. And there's a tremendous amount of mystery surrounding the interplay between Jesus as God and Jesus as man and Jesus the God-man. But just remember, there's two distinct natures here, his human nature, his divine nature, his human nature, which came into being at a particular time, his divine nature was eternal. But the two coexist in one person, if if we could say it that way, for all eternity. Two distinct natures, one person forever. So what does it mean when the Father says, today I have begotten you, if he's eternally begotten? I think it's speaking uh, to the incarnation at a particular time or particular event. Now, some believe it's referring to his conception or his birth. Uh, Others say it's a different uh, time and place. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes, excuse me, quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, this this very quotation, uh, and he points it or he connects it to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That when God says, today I have begotten you, that, that the resurrection was the proof and the validation that he was indeed the Son of God the Father. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection was the validation and the proof that he is the Son of the Father from all eternity. And as the eternal Son of God, he is eternally begotten. But as the God-man, he was begotten in time and place and became human flesh. So, there's an important point in this statement, though. we We can haggle about exactly when today refers to, but the point is that Jesus is unique in his relationship with the Father. No one has the same relationship with God the Father as God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow it through, if you read the Gospels about how Jesus uh, spoke of the Father, he spoke of my Father. He spoke of the Father. At times he spoke of, to, the, to believers of, about their relationship with God. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask. But only one time does he ever say, our Father. And when he says it, he's saying, in the Lord's Prayer, they said, the disciples say, how should we pray? He says, this is how you should pray corporately together, our Father. I don't believe he's including himself because Jesus, I think, was very careful to distinguish his relationship with the Father from your and my relationship with the Father. He is the unique, only begotten Son of God. We are sons and daughters by adoption. If you're a Christian, you were adopted into his family. You're called his child, his son or his daughter, but that's by adoption. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father points to a a unique relationship that our Lord has with the Father. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, to which of the angels did God ever make such a statement? And the answer is none, never. Now, it's interesting that in Job, um, the angels uh, present themselves, it says the sons of God presented themselves to the Father in Job chapter 1, speaking of the angels. But again, their relationship, their, their sonship was different. It was not unique as our Lord's. Well, the second thing that we find here, uh, the second uh, argument of the superior, for the superiority or supremacy of Christ is that he's superior because he's worshipped by angels. How could we be focused on angels when they're worshiping and focusing on Jesus? Now, the author is citing Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Now, I'm not asking you to turn there, but if you did, you wouldn't find the word angel in that verse if, you, if you're in an ESV Bible. Uh, angels are not mentioned. It says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, little g. And, uh, and uniformly, the understanding is that term gods refers to the heavenly beings or the angels. And in fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was widely available in that first century. It was translated by, they call it Septuagint, meaning 70. Uh, It was translated by 72 uh, Jewish scholars about 200 years before Jesus was born. Uh, It was widely used, uh, not so much in uh, in Palestine necessarily, but other places, other parts of uh, the empire, the Roman Empire, uh, by Jewish people. And uh, in the Septuagint, we read, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Let all the angels worship him. And numerous times we see that it's very clear the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint, which is another reason I don't believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul was trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. I think he would have been reading straight from the Hebrew text, and it would have said all gods. Uh, Apollos, on the other hand, who was from Alexandria, Egypt, would have been very conversant in Greek and likely would have used the Septuagint, uh, but that's a different discussion. Anyway, um, but we find the same translational difference or interpretive difference in Psalm 97, uh, verse 97, verse 7. The ESV says, worship him, all you gods, little g, because there's not more than one true God, and certainly the members of the Trinity don't worship one another, but the Septuagint translates it, worship him, all you angels. So the, 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 the interpretive uh, assumption in the Septuagint Greek was that the gods mentioned in the Old Testament refer to angelic beings, uh, those in heaven. So in verse 6, it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's exactly what happened the night that Jesus was born. When God brought him into the world, uh, an angel came and appeared to the shepherds and announced his birth. And then he was surrounded by a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace upon those with whom his favor rests. Now, what's significant about the fact that God is telling angels to worship the Son. Why does he bring that argument to this discussion? And if you think about it, why would you focus on angels? Why would you worship angels rather than the Son if the angels are worshiping Jesus? Makes no sense. The angels worshiped. Jesus is worshiped. And so we, like the angels, should, we should follow their example and worship 
the Lord Jesus. Well, the third argument that we find here is that Jesus is a superior because of his eternal reign as God. Uh, verse 7 says of the angels, he said he makes his angels winds and his ministers as flames of fire. Again, that's a Septuagint translation of Psalm 104 and verse 4. Uh, and when he speaks of the angel as winds and flames of fire, there's no doubt he is saying these are glorious beings. They're not these benign little uh, cherubs like you see painted on, on uh, church walls in various places uh, or you see depicted in some modern television shows and movies. You get this nice guy that shows up and you find out later that he was an angel. Uh, in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, which is one of my very favorite Christmas movies, the, the whole point of the story is George Bailey's in trouble and all these people cry out and pray to God to help George Bailey. And so he sends angel second class Clarence Oddbody. And he's this bumbling sort of clockmaker who hasn't quite gotten it all together yet uh, and hasn't earned his wings. Well, there's nothing in the scriptures that reflects a bumbling angel. When angels appeared to men, they were glorious. They were like flames of fire. They instilled fear. So many times when an angel appeared, the first thing they said is, you don't need to be afraid. Quite different from our modern conceptions of angels. They might be complimentary and not odd, like odd body, but they're benign. They're, they're not very threatening. They were, they're very comfortable type people. But Hebrews makes it very clear. These are glorious beings. They're like flames of fire. But still, there's no comparison between angels and the Son, the Lord Jesus. By contrast, they are these winds, these flames of fire. But Jesus is the glorious king, verse 8, of the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the angels are ministering spirits. They serve the king. But Jesus is the king who is served by these ministering spirits. And he quotes here from Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about uh, the king speaking directly, David speaking to his son Solomon, but prophetically speaking toward the Messiah. And we find that his reign, first of all, is eternal. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, I want you to notice here the messianic king is addressed as God. He is king. His reign is eternal. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I don't think David uh, was inspired by the Spirit to speak of that strictly about his son Solomon. Uh, it's, he's looking beyond Solomon to one greater than David and greater than Solomon, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. His reign is eternal. It's forever and ever. But secondly, his reign is royal. Your scepter we read, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter is this, this staff, oftentimes made out of gold, many times inlaid with jewels. It was ornate, and it was a symbol of the power of the king. If you remember the book of Esther, Esther is urged to go before King Asmoharius, or however you say that, uh, to plead for the life of the, the Jewish people because Haman had deceived the king into declaring a decree that they all could be slaughtered on a particular day. So she is going before the king uninvited. And she tells her uncle Mordecai, if I appear before him without an invitation, he could kill me. And he hasn't called for me for some time. 
But in faith, she goes, and the king extends his golden scepter, which says, come. It's a, it's a sign of welcome. In the, the Old Testament, we find the scepter of God crushing his enemies. We find the scepter of righteousness. We also find the, the, the kings of the earth have scepters of wickedness. Well, Jesus' royal scepter is one of uprightness. It's a symbol of his royal, his kingly authority. And his reign is royal. It's also righteous reign. It's a scepter of unrighteousness, or excuse me, of righteousness or uprightness. And he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. Now, again, Jesus is God. He shares the attributes of God uh, the Father and the God the Spirit. He is perfectly righteous. But as the God-man, he achieved a perfect human righteousness. Hebrews says he learned obedience through what was suffered. And that's such a, a powerful statement. The lawgiver placed himself under the law to redeem lawbreakers, and he is the one who from eternity was obeyed or to be obeyed once creation happened. But now he himself is learning obedience to his own law, placing himself under the authority of his father and of the law. It's an amazing statement. But he loves righteousness. It's a righteous reign. He rules his kingdom in righteousness. Everything he does as God or as king is righteous. And his reign, fourthly, is joyous. We read in verse 9 that God has uh, anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. That oil of gladness, most interpreters think it refers to the Holy Spirit. But that anointing, it's an important word. The word Christ is the Greek term, translation of the word Messiah. And it means anointed one. If you go back in the Old Testament and see how anointing with oil was used, it was used to initiate the ministry of a prophet. They were anointed with oil. Of a priest, anointed with oil. And of a king, anointed with oil. And sometimes you had uh, King David who would prophesy. Sometimes you had Samuel who was a prophet but also functioned as a priest. But you never had all three offices combined in one, except for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord Jesus. And he's anointed for all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And we see all three of those reflected actually in this text, in this passage. He made purifications for sin. He is the priest. He, the, the final revelation of God in verse, uh, verse 1, he is the prophet. And, of course, here he's the king. And so he's anointed, but with the oil of gladness. John three thirty four says that Jesus is given the Holy Spirit without measure. It's beyond that of his companions. But it's a joyful reign. He's superior to the angels. The angels are servants. Jesus is the one who is served. He alone is king of kings and lord of lords. And then fourthly, we read that Jesus is superior because he is the eternal creator. In verse 10 and following, you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will, remain, they will perish, but you remain. They'll wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll, you'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you're the same, and your years will have no end. Now, we already read in verse 2 that Jesus created the world, and in verse 3 that he, he upholds the, word by the word of, world by the word of his power. It's very interesting. If you went back and read Psalm 102, which is where this is quoted, it's not a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of lament where the psalmist is pouring out his heart to the Lord. He's pleading with God for mercy and for deliverance. And there's really no mention of Messiah in that psalm. 
But at the end of the psalm, he contrasts the shortness of his days. My days are short, and your years are without end, basically. His life is brief, brief, but God's life is eternal. And so he meditates on creation to underscore that point. As we read, you're, 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 uh, you created the world, and it, it, it's temporary. It's gonna, it's gonna, you're going to roll it up one day. And what's really interesting, again, is there's no clear reference here to Messiah. You and I probably would never apply this to Messiah if we were just reading it. We wouldn't guess and say, well, that's talking about Jesus. But the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we must never forget that. The author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does apply this to Messiah. And we already know that it was through the Lord Jesus the world was created. So when he speaks to God as the creator, clearly he'd be speaking to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, you laid the foundation from the earth from its very beginning. And of course, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He laid the foundation of the earth. But also, he created the heavens. The heavens are the work of his hands. But he lays a new creation, a new contrast for us. He's been contrasting Jesus and angels. But now he can contrast Jesus and creation. Creation's going to perish, but he will reign forever. Those things that you and I can see and touch and, and handle, those things that we can experience in this world, those will pass. They're temporal. But Jesus is eternal. His years have no end. In fact, we read that Jesus one day is going to roll up heaven and earth and change them like a garment. And we read in Revelation, that the, and, and Paul writes that the present earth is going to uh, one day give way to the new heaven and the new earth. And it will be glorious to see, and it will be forever. But that, that transformation from the present, the old heaven and earth, to the new is the work of his sovereign hand. He is eternal and all-powerful. And so, I want you to, to, to recognize, though, look at verse 7. Of the angel, he says, he makes his angel winds and ministers a flame of fire. And then he draws the first contrast in verse 8. But of the son, he says, and speaks of his throne. And then verse 10, and, and he comes to a second quote. So these verses are continuing the contrast started in verse 7. The angels are winds and flame, ministers of flame of fire. But Jesus, first is a king, secondly, he is the creator he created wind. He created fire. So the angels are, are, are created. Jesus is the eternal creator. And then finally, we read that Jesus is superior because he's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Verse 13 speaks of his ascension and his exaltation. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is, it harkens back to verse 3, this, the, the seventh, the final glorious statement of seven about the Messiah, about the Son, the Lord Jesus. It declares the fact of his, of his ascension. After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Well, here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And that verse actually begins... The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, Psalm 110 is teaching a lot of things. One thing it's teaching is there's more than one person in the Godhead. 
the Father and the Son. It doesn't name them as Father and Son, but clearly uh, we see that reflected there. We see that taught there. But the Psalm, Psalm 110, refers to the, the, the conquest of the Lord Jesus, that he conquers sin and death. And he does so through his own death and his resurrection, his ascension and his exaltation. But it also speaks of the ultimate conquest, the final judgment where his wrath is poured out upon his enemies and they're crushed. And in the middle, very interesting, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And you almost go, wait a minute. That isn't, well, actually it is, because it was through his priestly ministry that he crushed sin and death. And I I make that point because in all of Hebrews 7, it's going to be expounding that verse that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And and, and the psalmist, or the writer of Hebrews is going to go uh, into some length in talking about Melchizedek. So if you don't recognize, what's he talking about here? Hang on, we'll get to that in, in some time. But by contrast, here we have Jesus who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, but we have angels who are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Jesus accomplished salvation. The angels who needed no salvation because they had no sin, but they are sent as ministering servants to serve those who inherit salvation. If you're a Christian, that's you. That's me. It's interesting as you study the scriptures about angels, they're there. We don't want to pretend that the Bible doesn't talk about angels with great importance because it does. And if you look at the book of Revelation, we see angels throughout the book of Revelation constantly. But we see that angels are, 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 are depicted a number of, of roles as servants. They're, they're praising the Lord along with the living creatures and uh, every creature in heaven and on earth. But in chapters 4 and chapter 5, we find angels declaring the praises of God. Isaiah chapter 6, the, the seraphs, uh, angels are covering their face and their feet and they're flying and they're crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So angels worship the Lord. But they also are messengers from God to men. The angel uh, came to Mary and said, you're going to have a child. Came to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to marry. Mary, she's pregnant, not by you, but not by any other man, but by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be great. The son of the most high. Call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Appeared to Zechariah, Mary's cousin's husband. In their old age, they had no children. He said, but God has heard your prayer and he's going to bring you a son. He'll be that forerunner to the Messiah that's prophesied in Isaiah. An angel came to John and was basically his tour guide through the vision in the book of Revelation. So they're messengers from God to men. Angels oftentimes we find protecting the saints of God. Angels protecting the people of God. Doing battle in the spiritual realm against our enemies. Angels strengthen and comfort believers. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember, he sweat great drops of blood and pled for deliverance, but an angel came and uh, delivered and comforted him before he went to the cross. And Elijah, when he was uh, uh, despondent, running from Jezebel and despairing of life itself, it says that angels came and comforted him. 
Angels also carry out the judgment of God on their enemies. If you remember the seven bowls of the wrath of God, it was an angel delivering each of those bowls and carrying out God's judgment upon his enemies. And angels welcome believers into eternity. You remember Isaiah, uh, an angel came down on a chariot of fire and took him, uh, not Isaiah, excuse me, Elijah, uh, into heaven. And a number of times we, we see scriptures depicting angels as ushering or welcoming God's people into eternity. But they're ministering servants. They're sent to serve. The writer of Hebrews is not denigrating them and saying angels are insignificant. No, they're not. We would be blown away. We'd be bowled over if an angel appeared to us as they really are. But what we see in Hebrews 1 is, even though that's the case, angels are nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. Angels are ministering servants, send to serve. Jesus is the sender who is served by these angels. Two of our uh, brother Reformed pastors, Reformed Baptist pastors, Matt Foreman up in Media, Pennsylvania, Doug Van Dorn in Boulder, Colorado, they, they worked together to write a book called The Angel of the Lord. And the basic thesis of their book, studying through the Old Testament, the, the appearances or the references to the angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord, they argue that is uniformly Jesus appearing to, uh, uh, in, a, in a pre-incarnate appearance. Um, and they say this, they speak of Jesus, they say his New Testament appearing represents a greater revelation, an even greater salvation, a greater covenant with a greater mediator. And isn't that the message of Hebrews? Jesus is greater in all of his offices, in all of his work. He's greater because of who he is. I was talking with Pastor Scott yesterday, and I, I said, you know, this text, there's not a lot of, uh, there's, there, there's not any re- really any on-the-face specific applications. This is what I'm supposed to do in light of these truths. Now, if you get to chapter 2, if you read 2 verse 1, therefore, in light of this reality, this is what you ought to do, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. That's why we believe there was the temptation to drift away. We'll talk about that next week. But what I want you to take home this week Well, first of all, recognize the culture we live in. There is interest in angels. People talk about angels. It's interesting to me to hear Christians praying, God, put your angels around this person as they travel. Surround his car with angels. Uh, I don't really see people in the Bible praying that God would do something with angels. I see see people praying for God's protection, but he can protect however he chooses whether he uses the instrumentality of angels or not is kind of his business. But it just sounds more spiritual to talk about angels, right? Well, be careful. Our focus should be on Jesus, on the glory of God. These angels that we see in modern depictions and television and even paintings and stuff, sometimes the paintings are, you know, these cute little cherubs, sometimes they're actually flaming fire like you you know, like, like Scripture depicts. But recognize that modern man's not interested in the glory of the Lord. He's not interested in the authority of God. He's not interested in being called to account for his, uh, his determination to go his own way and be a law unto himself. And if an angel came and gave a, a message to such a man, his message would be returned to the Lord. It wouldn't be, let me help you pursue your best life on your own terms. And so, we need to recognize there's this fantasy of human imagination about angels, but it's not a biblical view 
of angelic beings. Jesus is superior to the angels. But let's recognize that what Scripture presents about angels, they're glorious beings. And Jesus is simply far, far, infinitely more glorious. But the Old Testament points us not to angels. It points us to Jesus. And the Old Testament is about Christ. So as you read your Old Testament, and not just your New Testament, recognize it is also, it is about Jesus. And we need to read our Old Testament in light of what the Scriptures tell us about the New Understand that there is an old covenant, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant as he gives and he establishes for us the new covenant. And the message that the writer of Hebrews is is passionate to communicate to us is that Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than the priests in the old covenant. His covenant, his new covenant is better than that old covenant. His rest that he gives, that Sabbath rest he gives is better The sacrifice he gives is better than those priestly temple sacrifices. The salvation he brings is better than that that was offered in the Jewish system. Jesus is better in every way. You and I must prize our Savior, Jesus. And we need to look at those those statements in the Old Testament pointing us forward and realizing that was the longing of faithful hearts fulfilled in Christ. But I want to ask you this question. If Jesus is that much better, is he your first love? Are you looking to the Lord Jesus for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate meaning? Are you carving out a little corner of your heart and saying, Jesus, you may occupy that part? Or have you yielded the entire house of your heart to the Lord and say, it is yours. Occupy every part. I am yours. And we order our lives around his rule and his reign. He is better than any other form of religion, Hebrews tells us. He's better than anything else this world uh, can offer. Because he created the world. We can have not only blessings of his creation, but we can have him. We can enjoy the creation, but we must worship our creator. Never confuse the two. So I ask you, are you making a little bit of room? For the Savior? Are you reserving a part for yourself? Or are you uh, seeking to give him every square inch of your heart and submit all of your life, all of your heart to the, Lord or, to the Lord? Are you looking to him to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul? That's the promise we read in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. The, 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 the satisf- or excuse me, Isaiah 55, the satisfaction he brings comes from him. And then I would close with this question. Do you know my Jesus? We can talk about him being better all day long, but if you don't know him, you're an outsider looking in. You're listening, you're hearing, but it is somebody else's truth. It's still true, but you are not benefiting from it. The angels were ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. My question is, are you one of those heirs of salvation Jesus came to secure for his people? The invitation he gives is always open. While there is breath in your being, the invitation is come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We don't need an angel to help us out. We need a savior to forgive us, to cleanse us. As we sang in the last song that we wrote, whose grace is sufficient for all that we need, for all that we 
face for every challenge of life. His grace is sufficient for you. Is he yours? Have you given your heart, submitted to him, repented of sins, trusting and believing, prizing the Savior, the Lord Jesus?